A good evening to you and welcome. Um, it's exactly 8 p.m. And um, because of time, if we are to end early, we will have to begin early. My name is Harry Mwesigwa from Lake Samika. I'll now hand over to Francis Biarhanga, the moderator, to lead us through as other people join and as the third panelist also joins. Uh, thank you so much, Harry. Um, for purposes of checking the sound, I would like to confirm whether I'm loud and clear. Yes, Francis, you're loud and clear. Okay, uh, thank you so much. My name is Francis Biarohanga. I'm currently a final year law student at Uganda Christian University. I'm honored to be moderating this space um, that is graced by a panel of noble legal advocates, I should say. Um, these are gentlemen that have traversed the intricacies of the study of the law and now its practice. Um, you're very welcome to this maiden space that will be the first in a series of uh, legal debates that will be held by Lexamica every Wednesday. So getting to the gist of this topic, the Israel-Hamas war, is it a graveyard of international humanitarian law? Um, I would like to request the two speakers we have with us to introduce themselves before we can commence the deliberations. We'll start with Benson. Uh, hello, Francis. I would like to just confirm that I'm loud and clear. Yes, you are loud and clear. All right. Thank you very much. My name is Benson C. Mayanja. I am a lawyer by profession and um, I'm a passionate speaker and advocate for principles of international law and I am very honored to be on this space. I look forward to having an erudite conversation, especially with my elder brother, uh, Joel Roy. Actually, technically, uh, Joel Roy should have come before me, <laughs> but um, I'm very grateful to be on this space with him and with a number of other speakers on the call. I look forward to a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Benson. When you look at uh, procedures of customary law, we usually save the, the last speech for the best. <laughs> so as uh, your elder brother, Joy, may now take the, the podium. Thank you. Um, good evening, Francis. Good evening um, to our listeners. I hope I can be heard. Yes, we can hear you. Awesome. Um, as introduced, my name is Joel Roy Mushunguzi, and uh, I think uh, maybe to set things straight, um, maybe uh, it is modesty that is making my 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 learned uh, friend uh, Benson hold me in such great um, regard or 
but um i appreciate the opportunity to be speaking to um uh, all of us on this subject i think it is um it is what you may call a perennial subject that's not going to go anywhere <laughs> anytime soon so i think it is timely that uh, uh people that are meant to be um contributing to conversations of uh international relevance to you know have an idea or two about this uh subject so thank you for the invite to speak to you yeah thank you so much um for introducing yourselves before we get into the depths of international humanitarian law i would like us to give context to the conversation and the debate we're going to have today um the speakers we have before us will first of all give us an insight on the historical background of the Israel Palestine conflict how does Hamas come in and then we shall look at the ongoing international humanitarian law violations in the Gaza strip uh, benson what do you think is the historical background um according to the information you've addressed your mind to and your analysis what historical background leads, leads us to the intricacies of um the conflict we have before us well francis i guess uh before i can begin the question on the law of conflict or any conflict at that is always one that is subjective it is subjective because an ongoing conflict is one which is governed by aspects of purported legitimacy from whichever side either party fights they believe they are fighting a just cause so what we may consider the historical perspective is one that is determined by what side of the hill of this conflict you view it from so i will try my best to be as fair to history and fair to the facts as we have them today now my understanding or my recollection of the israeli palestinian conflict at this point hamas does not come into the picture is one that stems way back it is a question of territorial sovereignty it is a question of religious um controversy now to put it quite briefly we basically had um a territory that was uh, that was occupied purportedly long before we can even remember by the jews the jewish uh population whereby the jewish population with um, you know when you read your bible you have a couple of um members in the bible that is uh, joshua many of them settled on that land now with time there was um an an islamic um an islamization of the region the islamization of the region resulted into an arab or an arab speaking population that began to coexist with them which claimed a couple of um areas within that region now with time uh, we had uh, more or less the holocaust and you know the 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 repopulation of the area 
So when we had, um, you know, around 1947, I think that's after World War, after World War, we are having the United Nations coming in to uh, implement some sort of, uh, it's called an armistice, I think, uh, in a situation where, by the way, supposed to quell the conflict between the Arabic community and the Jewish speaking community. The time that provoked the 1947 to the 1949 Palestinian war. This war eventually, you know, grew and with time we've constantly seen wars coming in. But I think for me, the most, um, um, the most pertinent war was the 1967 Six-Day War. That war, in its sense, uh, created what we now know as the Israeli-Palestinian War and the conflict that, com that comes with it. So essentially what happens is that you have an Israeli government that has occupied areas under Palestinian authority, which would probably be the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. These areas are now under the effective control of Israeli government and the Israeli authorities. Whereas some people choose to argue that there is no effective control, the existence of control over the, the seas and the airspace really do connote um, an effective control over that land. So about uh, close to about 30 days ago, a month ago, we had, uh, we had an attack by the Palestinian community known as the Hamas. The Hamas is basically, uh, now here's where it gets controversial. Some people choose to prefer to call it a terrorist group. Other people prefer to call it um, the military arm of the political movement in Palestine or the Palestinian uh, territory. And so they attacked Israel, which, you know, they've been at war for a couple of years now and they've been at it and it's not about to go away. Like Roy called it, it's a perennial conversation, it's a perennial attack. So in retaliation of that attack, the Israeli government has meted out a significant number of airstrikes and has conducted a number of attacks in Palestinian territory, Gaza, the West Bank, for a number of years now. And so the conversation is now sprouting once again because people think, or at least the data reveals, that this is one of the worst attacks since 1967, the Six-Day War. And that brings us to the conversation that we have today as to whether the aspects of international humanitarian law are being respected in that conflict. Thank you. Thank you so much, Benson. You have elaborately given us um, your historical perspective on the conflict. Joe Roy, what historical event do you think is pertinent to our understanding of uh, the Israel-Hamas war? Thank you. Uh, thank you once again, uh, Francis. Um, I think that um, broadly, the uh, and and if we're going to go into a history of Israel Hamas, we have to paint with broad strokes. If we're going to finish it in one hour, um, finish this discussion in one hour or less. Uh, but I like to take this back to the point of um, the point of uh, creation of what you'd call. Uh, what what we call the Zionist movement and and the creation of the Israel the the the, the state of Israel, uh, 
because that I think is where you start to have a relevant discussion on where this Israel Hamas um, conflict arises from. The reason I say that that is what is most relevant to this, um, uh, uh, the historical uh, evaluation of this is because uh, before the notion of uh, political Zionism comes up, before the Zionization of, of, of what typically uh, was Palestine uh, or Palestinian territory during both the Ottoman, the times of the Ottoman Empire, and also the, uh, during the times of uh, the British and French um, uh, mandate over that territory, you do not have much of uh, uh, at least an inter-people um, conflict that we are seeing today. The um, overtones that have been placed, the religious overtones, the um, racial overtones are if we were to trace the history back, I think we start. We have to start by looking at the discussions that happen um, in the creation of the Zionist movement, where and of course what underlies that. I think the starting point for me has to be again when, in a bid to destabilize the Ottoman Empire, um, the British, um, the British and 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 the French. Um, looking to um, maybe sow seeds of uh, discord or play, you know, the people in the Palestinian region against each other and uh, basically uh, found a, revolu a revolution around that time. We have the British encouraging in around 19, uh, uh, 1915, encouraging um, the Arabs, promising them an Arab state um, we can trust that uh, in uh, what we have come now to know as uh, the McMahon Hussein correspondences of 1915, where a British a British uh, uh, um, ambassador stationed in uh, in Egypt um, corresponds with uh, the 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 leader of the of the Arabs at that time and promises them an uh, Arab independence if. The Arabs in 1915 could start a revolution and effectively uh, destabilize the, the the Ottoman Empire and help the British, of course, take over the, the, the that region. I mean, the purpose for which the British were taking over the region is well known by now: plunder, possess, take resources. Around that time, uh, a year later, we also have in 1916 the French and the British agreeing between themselves that they will be sharing this territory where, you know, each party gets to uh, maintain control over territory where they have major interests. As to how they get to have major interests, again, you have to look back at the time where international law is uh, looking kindly, more kindly upon notions of uh, colonization. What we are looking upon as moral, international wrongs today were seen as normal modes of <laughs> of, of doing business then. And so um, Sykes-Picot, the Sykes-Picot agreements are signed in 1916 where the British essentially and the French promised themselves the same land uh, over which they promised the Arabs a state, right? In 1917, of course, in response to 
what is happening in uh, Europe where European Jews being a minority ha- are, are uh, consistently alienated um, and effectively creating a movement where they have to move into uh, that they, they have considered different places where they could establish what they called a national home the Balfour declaration uh, is 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 also made the Balfour declaration is usually spoken about you'd think that it is uh, in couched in the same language as we see declarations of the UN today but the Balfour declaration was merely a letter by um, um, uh, an official of uh, um, uh, the, the 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 British government, basically um, uh, telling the Zionist movement that we are in support of the idea of a Zionist movement, and we will be facilitating you to create a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. Around that time, the notion that is uh, spread across the land is that we're going to have a land uh, rather a a, a people without a land being given a land without a people what that is ignoring around that time and we say ignoring i think that the, the the word that we should be using is misinformation or disinformation around that time is that that time was a time where the land that we're speaking about today was occupied by Arab Jews, um, Arabs themselves, and and basically it was occupied territory during the Ottoman Empire. All people of different religions were coexisting in that territory, but it was primarily controlled by um, uh, by 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 Arab forces having taken over Ottoman forces, actually not Arab forces, Ottoman forces, and they were coexisting. So what we have then is people start coming in and making settlements, right? But notice that those settlements, by the time you have that Balfour Declaration made, the settlements are supposed to be coming in. And even in the Balfour Declaration itself, there is a clear caveat that the support for the creation of a national home is based on the respect of the existing peoples within the um, region that is uh, that, that the people are being said. Of course, that itself is an acknowledgement that the notion that is being spread around that time that it's a uh, a land for uh, a land, a land without a people for a people without a land itself is itself a deceptive notion, right? So, and the other thing that I think is relevant here is again the reaffirmation of the British after the Intifada in 1939 that the that they the, because there's a British uh, a statement of policy on, on Palestine where they affirm that. Uh, there's, there's supposed to be one a limitation of the creation of new settlements around uh, in 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 in, uh, in in Palestine around that time, and uh, the reduction, the significant reduction of uh, consistent immigration in that time. Because at the end of the day, when we are going to evaluate this conversation, it's probably um, the the relevant things are um, the notion of political Zionism as opposed to religious Zionism, together with the notion of um, creation of a nation state and the creation of 
what you'd call a minority in a place where you know um the definition of uh our peoples uh of of, of the people that that um occupy that territory is still ambiguous today because in the creation of the israelite state you have um around that time you have people starting to say how are we going to have these people coexist so the idea of a two-state solution starts to take shape and that's when you have uh, resolutions in 1947 defining uh creating a a, a partition plan for a two-state solution that of course leads us to the uh, significant um, um that of course it creates that tension between the peoples because in the meantime both sides here uh, roy roy uh, you should be concluding on that yes, particular yes. aspect of the discussion yes 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 so um i think that around the time and and to conclude around the time that we are looking at we're looking at um the creation of um tensions re- uh, resulting in um the idea of people who believe that this should be jewish territory well there's also people that believe that these people were only here as guests that should not be taking over the territory 1949 they have to redraw plans because of course there's the six day war as benson has told us and of course those plans um uh, are, are arise from the um having some sort of trying attempting a diplomatic solution that's when uh, you have yasser arafat in power and everything but at the end of the day the closest thing to um a historical event that tries to uh, to to uh, create a solution to this is the oslo accords which try to determine what uh concessions are supposed to be made on both ends to govern the relations between israeli and palestinian uh palestinians in that region that we now uh call uh, israel palestine and then the occupied and uh, uh, occupied uh, settlements yes uh, thank you so much roy that is a comprehensive analysis of the significant historical events that have led to this war today Yvonne has joined us. Uh, I would like her to pick us uh, to pick up um, from there in this discussion. And the question I would like to pose to you, Yvonne, you will introduce yourself and then take on the question: um, What is the contribution of antisemitism of uh, the Israel that is Jewish um, annihilation by the Nazi, and then also the antisemitism efforts? and perpetrations or by Argentina and the fact that the Jews were scattered across Europe and the Americas what did that contribute to their need to have a home and also is it true that Israel today is in a state of survival or perish is that the conundrum in which Israel um, persists that it should fight tooth and nail to protect the territory that was um accorded to it in 1947-48 by the Balfour declaration thank you and the un um hi thank you very much francis and apologies for joining a bit late i was struggling to join my name is ivonne tesire and um 
a recent graduate of law from Nottingham Trent and I'm based in, in England and I, I'm, I have such a deep interest in international law and it's what I'm working with at the moment, though I've not yet gone ahead to do the bar exam. Anyway, to quickly dive into your question, um, I think since before um, the timelines that my fellow speakers have given, we have known a strong wave of anti-Semitism in the world, and we know it's exactly what led what led to the Holocaust or the final solution, which was uh, deeply advocated for by the Nazis, uh, between particularly between 1930 up to the end of the war in April of 1945. And so because the, the Jews were generally scattered across the world, and not just in Europe, but as you said, in the Americas as well, they did desire a hope. And there were very many Western countries that were in support of this, because over the years, even before the Holocaust, there had been constant antagonism against the Jews. They were being persecuted, and it was right for them to actually do have a place to stay. So... Uh, following the failures of of of, of countries to um, to basically stick to the terms of the Kellogg Briand Pact, which was basically um, it was meant to make sure that countries never resort to war again. When they failed that, they had failed Jews in particular because they were the greatest victims of World War II. And so when the UN was created, its major mandate was to promote peace, but in particular to have to deal with the Jewish question. And so they ended up actually creating the Jewish state in Resolution 181, which was uh, mostly actually prompted by the US and Russia, where they felt that there was need to create um, two states where... Um, um, there would be a Jewish state, but also an Arab state. And the argument of anti-Semitism worked then. But, and I beg to disagree greatly, I don't think at the moment it would work. And I think that's what we had the, uh, the Israeli ambassador to the UN uh, speak about. He talked about how Israel is in a state of survival, how... Um, if Hamas were given another chance to attack or the, the Hezbollah were given another chance to attack the Israel, then they would do it over and over again until no Israeli is left. That that whole I, I uh that whole reverse psychology which basically is trying to promote this whole idea that anti Semitism is alive and, 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 and is basically thriving against them is 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 uh if you're to look at it in terms of international law, there have been very many crimes that have been committed by that. When Germany was uh perpetrating a wave of hatred against the Jews, they said they were a threat to them. When uh, the um, the Muslims in Srebrenica, in, in the former Yugoslavia, were being killed, it's because they were meant to be looked at as a threat. When the Tutsis in Rwanda were being killed in '94, it's because the Hutu government did perpetrate this whole idea that they are dangerous to us, they are a threat to our survival, and hence we are justified to actually go ahead and attack them. We're justified to defend ourselves. Uh, ourselves. And in international law, it's allowed for countries to act in self-defense. That, that's one of the reasons, uh, that's one of the ways um, uh, use of force can be legal in international law. However, what countries fail to get and probably what non-international lawyers fail to understand is that much as there are reasons that will allow a country to resort to war, there should also be um, an equivalent evaluation as to um, 
what will take place during the war. So basically, uh, as politicians may argue that the reason should justify the means or the, or the reason as to why we're attacking a certain nation should probably be reflected in how we attack that nation is not an international law logic and it's not supported by international law because un, under the the, uh, the use in Belo or the laws that do uh, govern in um, armed conflict or international humanitarian law, no matter the reason as to why you're waging war against a certain country, there are things that cannot be ignored, like protection of civilians, like distinguishing between civilians and 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 and, uh, and combatants, and when we fail to do that, that, that's literally the tone that Israel has been setting, that we are justified to do what we are doing, which politically may make sense, but international legal-wise, it actually does not make sense. So yes, I do agree with, with, with the whole idea that anti-Semitism was one of the reasons that justified Israel um, you know, being a nation of its own, but the ways in which the whole uh, uh, two-state solution has been perpetrated over the years, uh, the, uh, the, the the differences, uh, everything has just um, sort of like met, I mean, it has created different ideas in people's minds because, for instance, Hamas did not really come into the picture until 2005 after the second intifada. And before that, even before that, maybe Israel would have, uh, you know, um, Palestine would have made valid arguments under Yasser Arafat that um, that that uh, that they are trying to protect themselves, that there are illegal occupations in Palestinian land. But when it comes into the picture, there is Yvonne. Also- Yvonne, uh, I would like to interject right there. Yeah. Um, you you mention and say that Hamas didn't come into the picture until two thousand five. I would like to take you back to the Hamas Charter of 1988, mm-hmm. where they manifestly um, declare that there is no solution for the Palestinian problem except by uh, jihad. So essentially, the Charter in its entirety um, systematically lays down procedures that will be taken by Hamas and any other Israel, um, any other Muslim um, resistance movements yeah. against Jewish occupation of any land that is considered to be uh, belonging to the Muslims. So yeah. what is your opinion about the existence of the Hamas Charter and the, possi- and the declaration that they will only do so by jihad, which is understood as a holy war, mm-hmm. and that at no point are they going to settle for any peaceful means of dispute resolution okay thank you very much for uh for your question the reason why i said that hamas does not really come into the picture until 2005 is because it's in 2005 that they unilaterally take control over gaza remember gaza was initially part of of, of palestinian land but because of the war that preceded uh, that preceded after um, 1948 the israelis uh, uh, actually, no. In fact, it it went under Egyptian control, and then after 1967, when there were uh, negotiations between Israel and Egypt, um, Israel retained it on grounds that um, Gaza is actually not uh, an area that should be considered as Egyptian. So that 
the Egyptians can justify its occupation. So it's until 2005 that they go ahead and give Gaza to the Palestinians. And it's during that time that now the Hamas unilaterally take over. That is where we start to see a movement where people now start calling it a terrorist uh, terrorist movement because in the West Bank there was still the Palestinian uh, the Palestinian Authority which was recognized by the world in particular after 1974 uh, 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 when Yasser Arafat gave a, gave a speech in the United Nations and they were able to recognize I don't want to say government but his quasi-government as, as the ruling um, well the representative of 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 the of the needs of palestinians so whatever that had happened before 2005 with hamas was really um well i don't want to call it insignificant it is significant because it actually allows them to take over gaza but it's during that time it's during 2005 that they actually come onto the scene and from 2005 the uh well, the uh, the war really changes because right now, Palestine, some Palestinians are anti-Hamas and others are pro-Hamas. And like before under Yasser Arafat, where there was a united front, a united movement that was, you know, trying to um, advocate for the needs of Palestine, of Palestine. Well, currently, and as we see today, actually, there was a recent um, sort of like referendum, not this year, it's, it's, it was a few years ago where the, some almost 30% of Palestinians, no, 70% of Palestinians were not in favor of Hamas ruling them or of Hamas representing their needs because they felt it was more of a terrorist movement. So it means the, the, the ideologies and even, uh, um, it, even in the minds of Palestinians, everything seems to be divided. And this changed course after Hamas took over, I believe if there was a united front which was recognized by the by the by the UN that was governing both that's, that was governing both Gaza and, and 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 the West Bank and East Jerusalem and other occupied territories, then maybe that way we would have um, a bit of uh, you know a united front that's rooting from Palestine. But at the moment, we do not have them. As Benson said, some of some of the people are going to look at it as a terrorist movement, while others are going to look at it as actually a valid political wing that's wanting to support the needs of Palestinians. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Yvonne. You have ably addressed that question. Um, at this point, we'll get into the intricacies of IHL, and this question will be posed to Benson. Classify for us the conflict between Hamas and Israel. What is it? What's its classification under IHL? Oh, thank you very much, Francis. Uh, I think, Francis, before I could get into your question, I, I just wanted to reiterate the, the point that uh, Tessaia was trying to make. And I think in respect of the, the Hamas chatter, I think any discussion in relation to the effect of the Hamas in, in Israel and in Gaza and in respect of the conflict between Israel and Palestine ought to begin from 2007, 2008 onwards because we've also had, um, we've had, we've had the Hamas leader, the Khalid Meshal in 2010, who declared that the charter is a piece of history and that they were not necessarily going to rely on it, and it cannot be changed for internal reasons, partly because um, 
the approach, the fact that the Hamas had obtained political power within that time frame and the um, impact of political power within this war was a game changer. So in respect of um, categorization of the role of the Hamas in this in this conflict is significantly tracked from the years of 2005, 6, 7 till to date. So I thought that was particularly important because it's an introduction to the kind of classification that I'm going to make. One, I'm not particularly very certain as to whether the classification of the conflict in the Israeli Palestinian war is particularly important. Firstly, because at least at the end, at, at the tail end of this conversation, the idea behind the rules of international humanitarian law are going to supersede and they shall have more or less an overarching effect within the region, irrespective of the classification that we've made. That's one. Two, I would agree, however, that the classification of the conflict in Israel would be particularly helpful in as far as um, liability is concerned, in as far as enforcement of some of these rules is concerned, in as far as um, ensuring the compliance to some of these rules is concerned. And so those are the first two distinctions that I would like to make. So there are four points I would like to make um, in regard to the classification of the conflict. Firstly, I'll start with the introduction, which is essentially describing for us the two branches of international law. We have one that advocates for the justification of the war, and two, we have one that, that makes a justification for the rules that apply within that war. Now, Tessaia made a very strong point as to the appreciation of international law when a state or an armed force is permitted to go to war and use armed force. We recognize that the United Nations Charter and Article 2 prohibits the use of force. However, there are specific circumstances where a state may resort to use of force. That is known as jus ad bello. Now, that conversation is not particularly helpful when we are dealing with a situation where a conflict has already happened. Back in the day, I used to tell a story of how... Um, how I used to fight with, 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 with one of my elder brothers. And because he was significantly stronger than me and bigger than me and much older than me, the question was never as to why we are fighting. It was always a question as to how we are fighting. And in regard to the classification that we are dealing with, that then becomes the rules that apply in that particular conflict. So when you look at the rules that apply in conflict, you must be keen to determine what conflict you have. Two aspects to look at. One is in respect of an international armed conflict, and two is in respect of a non-international armed conflict. The very short answer to the declassification of those two is that where you have an international armed conflict, you're having a conflict between two states, between an armed group of a state and another. So in essence, or many others, so in essence, you'd have a situation where if you considered Palestine to be a state under international law, you would most likely classify this as an international armed conflict between an armed group of 
Palestinian, uh, under the effective control of the Palestinian Authority, or if you considered Palestine not to be a state, or irrespective of whether you considered it to be a state or not, but if you considered the Hamas to be acting of its own volition, independent of the Palestinian Authority, then you would have a non-international armed conflict. Now, a non-international armed conflict requires the existence of one, a state actor, and a non-state actor. A non-state actor is, in essence, an organized group or a belligerent force that um, is organized enough to be considered an armed force. Now, um, I'm a bit hesitant to particularly classify either of these because then it takes us back to the conversation that Roy was trying to make as to the justification or the sovereignty of the Palestine state. As we all know, Palestine is simply... Um, is, is awarded the status of, um, of a non-member observer state as a result of the, the United Nations General Assembly resolution of, uh, of 2012, I think resolution 6719. And in essence, that particular resolution uh, brings into question a number of instances. So I'm going to leave that open. However, in my opinion, I think the better way to classify this conflict would be to look at it as an aspect of occupation. Um, the Hague Convention and the Hague Regulations provide that IHL applies to armed conflict in respect of occupation. And we've had jurisprudence by the International Court of Justice I think in 2004 when it was dealing with uh, an advisory opinion on the legal consequences of construction of a wall um, in Palestinian territory, where it recognized that there was indeed an armed conflict uh, between a Palestine, uh, Palestinian territory and the state of Israel. And in that particular case, the, the court noted that the applicability of IHL and inclusive of international human rights law was definitely present. So aspects like the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, the International Convention on um, Social, Cultural and Economic Rights was equally present. So whereas people may prefer to argue that it is a non-international conflict, I would like to go uh, with um, an occupation because it's a much, it's a much easier one um, arguments around the non-international conflict uh, bring into question things like whether the Hamas is in actual fact an armed force under the definition of um, you know of an, of an armed force and IHL because the argument that has been made and the jurisprudence that we have is that for an armed force to amount to an armed force under international law or international humanitarian law, there are certain um, organizational requirements or the criterion that it's supposed to have. Things like the establishment of a high command, the existence of a logistic organization, disciplinary organization, uh, operational organization, and at the tail end of it is the conformity to principles of international humanitarian law. And looking at the conflict that we've had and the conversation that I'm sure we're going to have is whether the Hamas is ultimately are an IHL compliant force for it to be warranted the protection of an armed force under IHL. So the short answer to your question would be, I'm safer characterizing this conflict as one of occupation and neither of the two under a non-international conflict 
or an international armed conflict. Um, thank you so much, Benson. You bring in aspects of occupation, um, which are plausible in this case. And I would like to bring in the expertise of Joe Roy. Address whether you're in agreement with um, Benson's classification of the conflict as one of occupation. And furthermore, take us into the potent violations of IHL in the Gaza Strip. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I think quick answer. I, I, I think the starting point is that if we're going to go by the definition of occupation in international law, what what happened what's happening in in uh, in you know this conflict cannot of course be defined as anything but an occupation i think that it has been recognized as such and i don't think there's too much to debate on whether it is an occupation or not uh regarding the classification i think that um i would be le- i'd lean closer to the end of um of, of, of looking at this as an international armed conflict because of the simple fact that uh, whether or not Hamas is a popular force, the fact that it has obtained political control of what you what some parties uh, of uh, the United Nations and of, well, basically the international community recognize as the Palestinian state, um, I think that, or the state of Palestine, as, as they call it, I think that it would qualify to be a, a war that, or a conflict that, that involves two state parties. Uh, if you are not willing to classify it as an international armed conflict on the basis that Hamas is not necessarily the force that speaks for uh, Palestine because the PLO is what speaks for Palestine and it still has some control over the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Maybe there you can um, um, you'd be forced to go into the direction of um, some sort of double uh, double classification, whether it's where it's both an IAC and an IAC. Um, that way you'd have to be looking at who gets to back Hamas, who backs Hamas. And uh, there, because if it becomes a Hamas-Israel war, there you look at it as yeah, a non-state armed group uh, and versus a state, making it uh, a Nayak, but also a state, uh, i.e. Uh, Palestine versus Israel, making it an Nayak, meaning that it's a double classification. And that's sometimes also permitted in international law. Regarding the um, uh, concept of occupation, I think I, I want to take this back a little bit to, um, uh, of course, we've talked about the history, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm very hesitant even to go down the, the, the path of um, is this an occupation or not? I think it is obviously an occupation because even by the 1949 um, uh, armistice, the territory that um, that Israel was meant to occupy, which was already much more than what was agreed upon in the partition plan in 1947, Israel was already occupying way more territory than was agreed then. You may make the argument that that was territory annexed, properly annexed and won in the Six-Day War, that argument has its merits. However, even by that, um, uh, by that definition alone, what you'd be bringing into uh, consideration then is that 
on the one hand you have an occupying state being um being being Israel and on the other hand you have a liberation movement being the Hamas because the Hamas would make would be in position personally i think that the hamas is a, terri- a, a terrorist group properly classified because of its methods because of uh, its means and the fact that it gained some political control over palestinian politics does not necessarily in my opinion uh, uh, prevent it from being a terrorist group we th- i think that when you juxtapose uh, the hamas and and the plo you can see the clear distinctions in uh, their 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 methodology Whereas um, I think um, uh, the, the previous speakers have uh, shown us that maybe you can look back in 2007, 2002, 2007, you look at Hamas control, uh, Hamas, Hamas getting into um, uh, or changing uh, into a more potent force because we'd have to evaluate what makes, uh, what accounts for that because the PLO was the predominant uh, political force in Palestine. Uh, in the period that um, uh, in, in the period that uh, that we have an intention to implement the Oslo Accords, but following that, of course, there is a consistent attempt to destabilize what um, um, would have been a two-state solution. Um, I think that the uh, when when you're answering a question on occupation on whether this is an occupation and whether this is um, a, a, a political liberation movement on the other hand you have to go back to how for instance the Omkotho Wesizwe were, were classified in, in South Africa uh, before Mandela gets into uh, a discussion to actually um, be a peacemaker he's essentially also classified as a terrorist um, because I mean, it was an armed struggle. It was a liberation movement that was uh, meant to uh, upset a, a colonizing force in a way. So I think when you're talking strictly classification, it is very easy to find a double classification happening here, Francis. I, I think that would be the simplest way to look at it. Although I also have a comment regarding the um, the Hamas, the concept of the Hamas Charter that you you brought up. I think that when you're looking at the Hamas Charter, you also have to, which which essentially is saying uh, the only solution is jihad. You also have to look at the at at at, at uh, Article uh, rather at Clause One C, I think, of the basic law the the basic law of uh, um, the basic law of, of 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 Israel, which basically says that the right to exercise national self determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. That takes you back to the idea that what initially started out as just a question of establishing a national home where people could essentially come into a place, settle in, without necessarily creating a state. Because, I mean, the answer, the answer to um, the Holocaust and the killing of Jews in Europe wasn't necessarily the creation of a state. A homeland does not necessarily have to be a state because when you bring in the concept of a nation state, as uh, Professor Mamdani um, uh, asserts, that creates a dialectic of an oppressor, an oppressed, a majority, a minority. And when you try to operationalize that within the context of an already, uh, of a territory that already has a political system in place, naturally what you're going to do is uh, you'll have to come and recreate the um, political dynamics of that area. So 
what you have to do again is basically occupation. So that's it, up to that point, I have to agree with Benson that this is inevitably an occupation, both from a political uh, perspective and also from an international law perspective. Okay, uh, thank you so much, Joel. Um, you have ably addressed that aspect of the question. I would like us to proceed. Um, Yvonne, I would like to ask you a question. Um, you'll have to, you're going to delve into the various violations of IHL in the Gaza Strip and also take on the question of whether and to what extent is Israel violating the principle of proportionality under countermeasures? Because you may argue that um, under international law that Israel is pursuing or is resorting to countermeasures, having been attacked by um, Hamas on the, on the 7th of October. So we have the three-part tests, and in particular concerning myself with the aspect of proportionality. Are Israel's countermeasures proportional under international law? Thank you. Thank you very much, Francis, for your question. Um, well, in, in classifying the different crimes or the different uh, violations of international humanitarian law that have taken place in this conflict, it would still go back to a certain extent to classification. Because if, uh, for instance, to consider that this is an international armed um, conflict, there are crimes, for instance, like um, the, the the use of human shields or displacement of 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 of, of actually not displacement, attacking civilian objects that can relevantly be persecuted under war crimes because war crimes are it, it's it's that uh, unique um, uniting section between international humanitarian law and and and. and in an international criminal law but then if you're to look at this as a non-international armed conflict then the, the the use of human shields for instance is going to be very hard to actually prosecute because it does not appear anywhere in 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 in, in, in the conventions as part of a NIAC or even in in the rome statute and the reason why i'm bringing that up is because palestine is part is is a member that has accepted the uh, the authority of the rome statute and and even at the moment um the um the the prosecutor has 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 started proprio investigations into what's going on in 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 the Gaza Strip. So um, the first uh crime or the first violation that I would really want to talk about is is displacement of of uh, of of people from Gaza from from North Gaza in particular to Southern Gaza. The argument from Israel, of course, is 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 quite obvious that they're, they're trying to say in order to attack Hamas and to stop their threat, they need to uh, they need to um, attack Gaza, and they have been able to follow the the. Um, the rules of international humanitarian law by asking people to move to southern Gaza. But what is very interesting, actually, one of the things that came out of the um, the, the arguments before different cases in, in the International Criminal Court of the, of the former Yugoslavia is that a state or a party that is part, a, a, a state or an unstate actor, which is creating a humanitarian disaster, cannot in turn argue that they are, that they are making, um, how, how should I explain this? That they're basically um, making um, 
value displacement of people. So, for instance, if the people in northern Gaza were moving to the south because of, for instance, a, a humanitarian need that has been imposed by the UN, then that would not be forceful displacement. But now, since Israel is doing it in accordance with ICTY jurisprudence, then it cannot be considered as a valid warning. That's the argument of Israel. But the argument of international law is that that is really not prohibited. That, that is prohibited. And most people do not know this because it's something that um, that was quite subtle in, in, in ICTY because there were very many issues of of, of, of displacement of Bosn of Bosnian Serbs and and, 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 and and Muslims. That that's one of the issues. Then in in, in terms of uh, human shields, human shields is really important because it's um, we're seeing it in Gaza a lot and it's not done directly. It's very subtle because it's actually in a densely populated place. So there's Hamas that are possibly staying in Gaza and they are hiding with civilians. Now, if according to the law, if Israel intentionally attacks uh, people that have been used as, as, as human shields, for instance, whether those people are uh, are are, um, are there voluntary or involuntarily, they are still civilians, right? The same thing applies to dis displacement of people. Whether people heed to the warning of moving or whatever you may call it, if it's uh, if it's something valid, then it's a warning. But then, from the explanation I've given, international law may not look at it as a warning, but rather as a threat. So whether they heed to it or not, they still remain civilians. So you will not attack them and say, oh, we, we told you to move and you didn't. No, they're still civilians. And it's the same thing when it comes to the, to, uh, to the use of human shields. And I think that's where the argument of proportionality comes in. Because from what I've just uh, discussed, the major principle there is distinction. You need to um, you need to distinguish between civilians and and um, and and combatants, and not just any kind of combatants, but those that are actively taking part in hostilities. If they are reservists or wounded soldiers, and they are not combatants, so even if the Hamas are there, but they have been wounded or they are not able to actively take part in hostilities, then according to IHL, they deserve to be protected, and Israel should not be. Um, should not have any reason to attack them whatsoever and it should not fall within countermeasures. So when they have failed to now distinguish between civilians and non-civilians, the argument that they can raise, on the other hand, is proportionality because proportionality is what's going to make um, that maybe to a certain extent justify what the Israelites are doing because you need to make sure that if you're attacking a certain area, the civilian damage or, or damage to civilian objects is not as, as, as bad. Let me put it plainly like that. But then it becomes very hard because of the numbers that are coming out of Gaza currently. And actually, what's absurd is the uh, the um, the Israeli ambassador to the UN said, believing those numbers is literally like believing numbers that come out of ISIS. But we have seen. Um, um, fact-finding bodies approve these numbers. Like, for instance, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine, they have proved some of these numbers. And if you are to ensure proportionality, then there are certain tools of war, weapons of war, that should not be employed because by virtue of their use, 
you cannot ensure proportionality. So just not from the side of Israel, Hamas bombing uh, and sending of five to 7,000 rockets into Israel, that is a clear violation of proportionality because such a tool cannot be able to distinguish between civilians and non-civilians. And it applies to Israel as well. The way they are bombing um, indiscriminately, hospitals, uh, buildings, um, ambulances, everything, it's very hard for them. To, it's very hard to argue proportionality. I think, in my opinion, and very many international law um, enthusiasts or experts would agree, it's very disproportionate. But we need more facts. I feel like the law in this area is very fact-hungry. Unfortunately, we have the luxury to argue these things, but people on the ground do not have the luxury. And that is why it's important to get the facts from them, to get facts from people that are on ground. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Yvonne. Benson, what do you have to say about that question? Okay. Um, firstly, I'd like to recognize the point made by Tessa. And I think the point that she has made quite very candidly is firstly that the wars that war that human loss uh, of life is is a call is an inevitable consequence of war and the challenge of having conversations such as these is that you tend to make certain arguments that ogre quite sourly in the in the ears of people who are pro-life and perhaps, say, international human rights activists. But it's an also an inevitable conversation to have because we have already passed, we have already crossed the bridge of preventing war. We're now in a situation where there is war. And so the rules on IHL ought to determine how you conduct that war. And that's the first point that I think Tessaya made quite very clearly and that I thought I needed to re-echo before I can make the argument that I intend to do. Tessaya has also made it quite very clear that there is an intersectionality on the rules that govern international humanitarian law. There are primarily three principles that determine warfare. The first is distinction. And this rule requires that any party to an armed conflict must distinguish between a civilian and a combatant, between a civilian object and a military objective. And it is also quite very important that whilst they do that and whilst they choose to attack some of those particular military objectives, that that attack is proportional to the anticipated military advantage. And then thirdly, is that as and when they can, and while they try to ensure proportionality, that there must be precaution to minimize any incidental loss of civilian life or destruction to civilian property. So my contribution to what has already been said is firstly that there is an intersectionality of these rules, that they cannot be applied devoid of another, that they are conjunctive. And we've had jurisprudence, not only of the International Criminal Tribunal and the former Yugoslavia, but also of the International Criminal Court, 
Now, the third thing that I'd like to put across is the question of um, military advantage. Now, military advantage in its essence means that um, it is it is the advantage that is anticipated from any military attack, either as, as a whole, to ensure that um, you know there is a direct and overall advantage that is obtained from that particular attack. Now, the reason as to why this is particularly important is that it arms it 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 strong arms any arguments that have been made by people to suggest that Israel or Hamas, if you choose to consider it an armed force, is not justified in attacking civilians. They would be justified in attacking civilians only where that attack struck that, um, um, yeah, that attack is proportional to the military advantage anticipated. So say, for instance, if you were attacking um uh, an army base where there are about two or three civilians or where the particular military advantage that you'd obtain, say for instance, if it was the head of the Hamas, would be significantly higher than the loss that would be obtained. The same goes for civilian objects. The same goes for even when, you know, one group chooses to use civilians as human shields. So whereas it is a very sour pill to swallow, there must be a consideration, like Tessaya said, of the facts on ground, but also a consideration of the statements that come from top Israeli officials. But then before I can take leave of this matter, it's also important to recognize what Roy said. Roy's consideration of the Hamas is that it amounts to a terrorist group. Now, if you recall from the initial characterization of the conflict that we've had, the distinction between an armed group and a terrorist group is fundamentally important because as an armed group under IHL, you are bound to follow the rules of IHL, short of which then the international legal framework governing IHL and war crimes to that extent will apply to you. However, if it is considered a terrorist group, then the terrorist group is in essence not necessarily bound by um, say, for example, the obligation to only attack um, military objectives because by the very nature and modus operandi of terrorist groups, like you've seen with maybe, say, the LRA or any other terrorist group that you're aware of, say, for example, ISIS, their attacks are primarily on civilians, civilian objects, and anything that is incidental to causing terror within a region. So that is also primarily very important to, to put into consideration while we have this conversation. So if we choose to classify the Hamas as a terrorist group, then there are certain expectations that we would not have of the Hamas, say, for example, to only attack military objectives in respect of any attack on the Israelis or on the Israeli government. But if we choose to classify it as an armed group, which is the safer side Doris classified on, then they have an ultimate obligation to ensure that they distinguish between civilians and um combatants and to ensure that there is proportionality in the attack to ensure that a particular direct military advantage which is anticipated is achieved and to ensure that there is precaution in that regard. And then lastly, um, in respect to what Tessaya said about uh, forced displacement, like she's right about the whole um, analysis on who would argue for Israel and who would argue against Israel. Because under the principle of precaution, there is an ultimate obligation.
education upon armed groups to ensure, say, for example, to take reasonable steps or any feasible precaution to ensure that there is minimal civilian loss. So when Israeli government, you know, drops these flyers in, 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 in Gaza and makes warnings and there are these sirens that are that are made before an actual attack is made, one could argue that it is a way of a coercive means of ensuring that there is forced displacement of a population which would be illegal under international um, international law. But then there is also another argument that suggests that they are actually being compliant with um, the IHL principle of precaution to ensure that as a minimal, uh, there is minimal incidental loss to the nature of the attack that they intend to meet out. And I think that's something that I thought should come across in the conversation. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Benson. You really highlight um, very pertinent aspects of Yvonne's submission and Joel's assessment. Um, just to set the record straight, we will let us be finishing this deliberation by 9.30. We will give an opportunity for the audience to ask questions. We will ask uh, a maximum of five questions that you will point to any of the speakers that will be addressed in about three minutes each, and then we'll close. For now, I have a question for Joel. And the question I want to pose to Joel is, one, um, Benson brings up a very good aspect. Um, actually, Yvonne raises the aspect that the area of um, proportionality or the principle of proportionality under international law is fact-hungry, especially in regards to this conflict. And furthermore, the apparent clar uh, classification of Hamas as a terrorist group which has been recognized as the same by the U.S. and the European Union and NATO and different organizations. How does this interplay into the different um, violations of IHL by either parties to this conflict? And furthermore, in your opinion, is it possible to contain Israel and restrain Hamas and other terrorist groups in regards to the fight over the territory in Palestine? Thank you. All right. Um, so maybe I'll try to, uh, since we are really short of time, I'll try to see how I can answer that as directly and um, uh, while not losing out on the nuance that it requires. Uh, firstly, um, the reason why um, I would uh, defer a bit from uh, my brother Benson on um, uh, us having a safer classification for Hamas as merely an armed group in the name of being able to hold them accountable under international humanitarian law is because I think when you're trying to classify a, um, uh, uh, classify a, a, an, a, an actor in such a conflict, you have to look at their antecedents. What is it that they are doing that, you know, speaks to the classification you're going to give them? Even on the basis of the um, 7th October attacks alone, not only did we have deliberate, indiscriminate uh, um, uh, missile launches out of Gaza into Israel, Israeli territory, or what 
I am skeptical about, okay, Israeli-occupied territory, or should we say settlements? And then um, we also have foot soldiers, I mean, people getting out of Gaza into Israeli, uh, t- uh, in, into Israeli-settled uh, territories and kidnapping people, uh, killing them and everything. The, those, 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 those acts were not targeted at any particular military objective and everything. They were the the nature of terrorism is that it's 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 um it's asymmetrical and 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 it makes it very difficult for you to um uh to sort of identify um hem them in with with the rules that we are setting for ourselves right so and that is why i'm saying that simply because hamas sort of seeks to regularize its uh, itself despite the well, renowned classification that it has always acted in a manner that would justify a classification of it as a terrorist, I think it is necessary for us to look at what it is doing that, uh, as opposed to what we expect of it. What has it shown us that it is doing from the onset? But then that brings me to Israel. I think that um, when, um, and to answer particularly Francis' question, um, when we're trying to um, when 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 we're trying to play these two against each other, when we're trying to look at the 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 role of each and how they are supposed to uh, respect international law, whether Israel li- likes it or not, to the extent that it seeks to identify itself as a state, it has to be ready to take on the responsibility of a state. Now, the responsibility of a state is to respect international law, even to the extent that it is not bound by some statutes, but at least it is a party to the conventions that it has ratified all the four Geneva conventions, except um, it hasn't ratified some of the protocols. But Israel, not Hamas particularly, Palestine, the state of Palestine might have ratified this, but Israel is the party that is more... So when... Hamas launches an indiscriminate attack. The response from Israel cannot possibly be, let me also, because my classification of the indiscriminate attacks by Hamas is that they are terrorist attacks. But my classification of Israeli attacks by virtue of its position as a state is that they are inevitably war crimes committed by a state. For the simple reason that when we look at the definition in international law of war crimes when we look at the international uh, the, the definition of genocide and we look at what the intent of and and this is not coming out of conjecture it's coming out of the uh, explicit words of the israeli security minister there is the israeli prime minister that they are trying to annihilate they are trying to uh, do something that will be that will reverberate for centuries in gaza that cannot be language. Again, when you look at um, the framework of the UN that was uh, on, on, uh, on uh, classifying uh, atrocity crimes, we look at this kind of uh, behavior, this kind of language, this kind of, um, 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 of, 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 uh, of conduct as the kind of conduct that basically radicalizes people, dehumanizes people. They, they, they classify them as uh, uh, human animals. We should deal with them as such. When you are a state and you have that responsibility to be the party that 
gets to respect international law, it is it does not follow that you act in exactly this a, a similar manner to the um, uh, terrorist organization you're, you're, you're purportedly responding to. But more importantly, I think outside of the law, and, and, and I think maybe to address the theme that we're discussing today, is it, I think we become like, um, like, like um, members of a religious cult discussing the jargon of that cult when we uh, think that in the practical context where people are exchanging um, ammunition, when we think that they are going to be thinking primarily about um, what laws govern them or um, the other. Yes, we can think about that when we're trying to hold them accountable. But one of the things that um, I think, again, one of my uh, one of the my favorite uh, analysts of uh, of this this particular war, uh, um, uh, Professor Mahmoud Mamdani, says is that um, what is relevant here is that many of these questions are those uh, they are they are questions which require a political solution as opposed to a legal solution. So. The disciplinarian view that we try to impose on this is that at some point we're going to have to realize that the approach to this is going to have to be a political one as opposed to saying, uh, this one is bound by international law, let's go prosecute some people here and there. More importantly, when we go to how international relations work, this war has shown us that Whereas we claim that the uh, the the realism is on its uh, is 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 in its evening and uh, we're on the dawn of uh, liberal international uh, internationalism, we're seeing that this is not actually the case. Israel is showing you that it can do things that would warrant being um, uh, prosecuted or having its officials prosecuted for war crimes, and it's getting away with it. But more importantly, if we're going to go back to say um, who has what responsibility for these things, we're going to have to ascribe more responsibility over these to the occupying Israeli um, state or the attempted creation of an exclusively Jewish state as part of the reason that there is a radicalization that encourages Hamas behavior. It's not a justification for it, but it is essentially an observatory explanation of how you will end up with more people seeing some sympathy. In and and and, and I think that um, it was Slavoj Žižek that that pointed out the fact that the fact that we abandon nuance in this discussion has led to one thing: that now the even the anti-Semites, the true anti-Semites that genuinely hate Jewish people and probably want them dead, are going to be blended together with people who genuinely just want the right of people um, like the Palestinian people to self-determine or to um, exist without bombardment. And those will be conflated and you'll end up with um, 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 a, a legitimization of anti-Semitism. And, and that is something that we're trying to advise, uh, avoid. And that is why I insist that it should be Israel that takes, if it wants to at least identify as the legitimate, uh, as, as a legitimate democratic force as, 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 as it claims to be, it should be the one that takes the responsibility to uphold the international law. But as we are seeing, it is saying, 
I am a sovereign state. I will do what I please. And I do not think you're going to do much about it because in the realist international order, international relations order, I have control over, like um, in the international community, there's very little many, um, many of you can do to me. So I, I think that's, that's really my takeaway from uh, that particular uh, uh, subject. Uh, thank you so much, Joel. Um, that is a very able submission. At this moment, I'd like to request any of the people in the audience to ask a question. If one, I have your question, it will come um, after one of the people in the audience has asked a question. So this is your opportunity to pose a question to any of the panelists. Thank you. Um, meanwhile, as, as the people in the audience think of a question, you will request to speak as soon as you have a question. Yvonne, what do you think is the possibility of uh, maintaining the status quo? Uh, we have a two-state solution. Uh, we have Gaza and we have the West Bank. Is coexistence possible given the current geopolitical landscape? Thank you. Hi, Francis. Thank you for your question. Do you mean coexistence between Palestine and Israel or those two areas of Palestinian territory? Um, the question is in regards to Palestinian territory. My concern here is that even with the West Bank having been apportioned to Palestine, there is a challenge that Israel is closing in on some of the territorial um, provisions that were apportioned to Palestine. And this is why the PLO is getting concerned and why actually Hamas launched this attack in particular, that even the land that was apportioned to them, it's like Israel wants to <laughs> rub Palestine off the map. What do you think? Thank you very much for your question. So um, I think to answer this, I want to go back to what Joel briefly said of how to be able to answer this, it may require more of a political solution than a legal one. We've seen since 1948 that countries, in particular the West and the United Nations, have tried to create a, a lasting solution. Like, for instance, when uh, I referred earlier to Resolution 181 of, of, of 1948, we expected well, theoretically, both of these countries to actually stick to the boundaries that had been set. But very quickly, it changed. The, 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 what was once under the, the Arab control now went into Israeli control. And this has been the theme from 1948, even way before that, right? So there is, I do not really think that uh, um, what we are trying to see today or like the... Um, What's happening in the West Bank usually, uh, where there is illegality of you know of, of occupation by the Israelis, or even what's going on in Gaza, is going to require um, the solutions that we've been taking, especially these endless theoretical resolutions by 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 the by the UN or the West trying to intervene in a certain manner. On ground, we know that. There's so much that's taking place in the background, in particular with the West having to support 
uh, Israeli occupation. And I think the war comes, I, I, I don't want to sound very, uh, well, very pro-war in a sense, but this war or this occupation or even this phase of Palestinian war comes at a right time because we tend to now compare what happened with Ukraine and Russia and what's happening with with with, with Gaza, the West Bank and and, 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 and and Israel. Because the argument, for instance, in terms of Russia and Ukraine by the West was that um their occupation is wrong, and even if they are not party to the Rome Statute, uh, the 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 the, uh, the prosecutor can go ahead and start investigations against Russia proprio motu, even without a Security Council referral, because that's uh, that's a requirement for a country that's not party to the Rome Statute. Uh, investigations can only take place if there is a Security Council referral, or if that country self refers, which is very unlikely. So. In, they were able to support that, much as it's not in the books, it's not written in the Rome Statute. So even when it comes to um, to um, to Israel and to Gaza and to the West Bank, if anything like that were to happen, especially considering that there would never be a five vote in the Security Council to deal with issues of of, of Israel in particular, in terms to deal with the occupation, if the prosecutor were to adopt similar precedent with what just happened with Russia and Ukraine, then maybe we would see a difference. But that is, personally, I think it's a, um, it's a legal fantasy and we may require better ways to deal with this politically, like, like what Joel said. So um, I do not know how this war is going to end and I do not think whether there is a res- there's already been a resolution anyway but passed by the United Nations the resolution L25 in order to ensure peace in in Gaza in 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 the West Bank as well much as it's not being talked about so much there's so much going on there but at the end of the day I do not see much changing especially since Israel is like it has hegemony in that area and whatever it decides is what is going to follow suit. So whatever we talk about or whatever international lawyers are going to raise, whatever arguments they're going to raise are simply going to remain very theoretical. It's up to Israel to actually decide how this is going to go. Because as we have seen, theoretically, I do agree with what the UN has done. The UN always tends to be very quickly to make resolutions in order to, um, you know, to, to, to end war or to promote peace whatsoever. But action-wise, it's going to be very hard to um, to hold back Israel, if that makes sense. So I think this is going to exist. And just like the, the, the 2014 war, how it ended, or even the 2007-2008 war with Hamas, it's going to be the same. It's going to be. It's going to end probably with with a resolution or with with, with some negotiations that may involve, for instance, Egypt. But occupation is going to remain. Illegality in the West Bank is going to remain. Everything is going to remain, and it will not be solved by anything legal. I do not see individual criminal responsibility. Um, against Israeli prime ministers or or their the, the defense minister, especially with very, um, in courts, very genocidal statements that they did make, that will not happen. It's just an argument that we're going to make. However, 
what can solve this is something more political. And I do not know how or which country would lead this, but for Israel. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, Yvonne concludes that not much will change um, in the status quo in the Israel-Hamas conflict. Joel, you seem to be having a burning issue that you'd yes, like I, to address. I just, yes, since we're In two minutes. About- Two minutes. Yes, it, very quickly, I, I, and I think I, I probably should uh, sign out with this. I think that we need to go back to the starting point where we said the real problem with this, um, uh, with the Israeli state, the Israeli nation state, is that is political Zionization. The idea that remembering that in Israel, or what we call the Israeli state, there are about 2.2 million Palestinians already, right? Before we even go to Gaza, West Bank, and East Jerusalem. And those people are denied a national identity and uh, the right to exercise any sovereignty, meaning that the state that we have as Israel right now exists to serve at the beck and call of the national majority. It would be akin to in Uganda, say, doing a census and saying the majority uh, tribe in Uganda or the majority religion or whatever it is in Uganda is this. So let us have a Ugandan state that does whatever it is to secure the interests of this particular group. And that is what Israel is about because Israel, especially with the move to the uh, right, forgetting even its more secular foundations, finds itself in a place where it is trying to uh, create a state, play within the notion of a nation state, but doing it only giving identity to a particular group and creating permanent minorities in the whatever. And the solution, I think, or the closest thing to a solution is what you'd call desionization. Desionization is basically realization that um, Israel is a state for all of its citizens. Um, again, I point to Mamdani on this because he, I think, tries to give us the closest comparison between South Africa uh, during apartheid and uh, Israel now. I think that where we notice that um, we depoliticize the Jewish and Palestinian identity, there we'll find that we are trying to protect the rights of all the citizens of Israel, in, not particularly based on the idea that these are Jews, these are Arabs, these are Arab Jews, these are Ashkenazi uh, uh, Jews, these are Mishrai. We must get to a point, and that can only happen through an epistemic revolution, and that can only be driven, as Yvonne is saying, by a conscious movement within the Israeli people. But that cannot happen when you have people who are moving farther and farther to the right, getting more and more radicalized because when they are getting more and more radicalized within the is and they are taking leadership people who had who are mere fringe movements are now becoming more popular it takes it may take a war like this to actually uh make people look in on inside of themselves and say actually we are more than this and actually look at trying to view the humanity that they all share and i think that the desionization is something that we need to start thinking about as opposed to having a Jewish state 
as is uh, uh, that is unique to Jews or that national sovereignty is uni- unique to Jews, we start to see a Jewish, a rather uh, an Israeli state that that, um, that tries to democratize itself and work for all of its Israeli citizens. I thank you. Thank you, Joel. Um, I think, as you mentioned, with that submission, you'll have the liberty to live <laughs> at your own time because I think you had um, apportioned a particular span of time to this space. Thank you so much for being with us today and thank you so much for gracing us with those beautiful, well-researched and thoughtful submissions. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Okay, cheers. Okay, um, we move on to the questions from the audience. Silas Unen, um, you called the mic first, so you will um, ask the question. Uh, thank you so much, Francis. I hope I can be heard. Yes, you're loud and clear. All right, thank you. I hope Joel has not yet run away and is still on the space. Uh, because my questions yes. will probably go to uh, both him and uh, Benson. So I wanted to start from what something that uh, Yvonne mentioned. And for me, that is the pretentious nature of international humanitarian law and international law as a whole. Because you see, at the end of the day, uh, Joel made a very good suggestion that you see the only thing that is going to solve this war or conflict is not the law, but rather uh, the political will from the warring parties. But you see, at the end of the day, before we get to that po- uh, political solution, the question should be, are we going to let the perpetrators of you know, the violence, are we going to let the people that have violated various provisions of international humanitarian law walk scot-free? I think not. And I think that's where international humanitarian law comes in and the other regimes of international law. But because of the pretentious nature of these laws, they are currently unable to in fact hold to account those that should be held to, 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 to account before we even get to you know uh, whatever solution it is that we want to provide to these uh, two states. One thing that I would want to mention is the fact that international law, uh, sorry, IHL seems to uh, draw a picture of a, a situation where you have two warring parties that are all at an equal ground and at uh, an equal level. When you say that IHL does not protect terrorists, for example, if you say that at the moment a group has acted as a terrorist group, then the other party that has been offended can respond in whatever manner it uh, deems fit to counter such terrorism. You're creating a situation where you have the lesser warring party being labeled then as terrorist as a terrorist group in a deliberate move to create a situation where their response will not be uh, held to be over and above what should be under IHL. And I think that is what is happening. I think the labeling of the Hamas as a terrorist group is basically a deliberate move by Israel and its uh, supporters to create a situation where Israel can do whatever it wants and it will claim that you know their actions are more than justified and that their actions are proportionate uh, in the fight against the terrorist group that is Hamas. But I want us to look at the fact that Hamas is in the lesser position in this case. 
they're going to send over 7,000 rockets to Israel, and most of them are going to be intercepted by the Iron Dome. Now, the question is, how then would you expect such a party to inflict any sort of damage on a party that they are fighting against? Whereas we all know that if Israel woke up in the morning, and, is, and just like they've been doing, they woke up in the morning and they're like, we're going to attack uh, Palestine. And they've been doing that for a while. Countless lives have been lost, but you could never have uh, the Hamas do the same thing because they're in a much lesser position. So at what point then do we hold uh, Israel accountable for such actions, knowing well that they have refused, or they are not in fact as state parties uh, to the Rome statute at the end of the day? And if this conflict was to ever come to an end, do we see a situation where the laws, the international laws that we have in place will actually hold to account both Hamas leaders and uh, the leaders in Israel for, well, causing this uh, immeasurable pain and suffering uh, to the different persons that they have been attacking over this uh, period of time. And I think that goes to, well, all the panelists. Uh, thank you so much for your question. Benson, would you like to be the first to take this on? Thank you, uh, Francis. Can you just confirm if I am audible? Because I had a hard time listening to what Charlotte was saying with my network. Well, we can hear you, but um, the network is not that firm. Then in that case, I think let me try to stabilize my network uh, in the meantime. Okay. Joel can take this one first. Yes, thank you, uh, Francis. Um, the quick and simple answer to this is um, maybe to ask for every time that we have decided that uh, we have, uh, we, there has been a genocide or um, um, an annexation or whatever, for every time that we've decided that um, let's try a legal solution or something that... Um, uh, penalizes what you'd call the perpetrators of those offenses. The question is, what results have we gotten in the long run? What has what 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 was the net effect of the ICTY and the ICTR? What what did they um, uh, help in 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 solving those solutions? Uh, rather, solving those those particular wars. Um, the reason I ask that is that ultimately. If we are going to have a discussion on apportioning responsibility through maybe international criminal law, where you'd probably want us to take this, um, the, the, the net effect would be to make it almost impossible to get onto the table and discuss political solutions. What that may also mean is that whereas you're complaining about it as a pretension in international law, in international relations, that is pretty much how things function. Whereas there is an international order, rather an international legal order, that international legal order operates broadly on a very loose notion of consent, consent which is sort of um, abridged by the abridged or improved by the um, amount of power that you exercise within the 
uh, within the broader international concept context. For some reason, political, cultural, socioeconomic, Israel and the particularly the Zionist side of Israel enjoys some political clout because one in the dialectic of oppressor and oppressed, very few people have started have have have, have realized that Israel could have actually shifted in that dialectic to being the oppressed. They still look back on Israel as being the oppressor rather. They still look back on Israel or the people of Israel because again, the nation state that is Israel has not yet taken on a real national character. It's still looked upon as a Jew Jewish state where enjoying any rights as a citizen therein, and um, we're trying to look at possible solutions, right, is tied to being acknowledged as a Jew as opposed to being a citizen, for instance, of Israel, right? Now, if we are to take your solution of let's look uh, let's pick out maybe say Netanyahu and uh, and 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 and, and uh, wh whichever other people that we think have committed war crimes and say we're going to punish them. What chances do we stand of even initiating a conversation of implementing a solution that leads us or inches us a little further away from? Um, from from um, a perpetual conflict that and and takes us towards the epistemic revolution that I think would uh, give us something close to uh, uh, a solution to this to this perennial problem. If we are trying to say uh, because two there's there's two ways this can go if there's going to be conclusion. One is going to be. Either there's going to be a total annihilation of what you call the Palestinian state and Hamas along with it, and maybe it remains a fringe organization, and that is political victory. I mean, um, in international, um, rather, political political uh, conflicts are usually ended by a decisive political victory. That may take a while when Qatar gets involved on, on, on the end of, of, of Palestine and Hamas. On the other end, the U.S. is always involved. And basically, Iran gets involved on the end of Hamas. That may perpetuate the conflict. But at the end of the day, if there is a decisive political, rather, uh, military victory, that may end the conflict. And all these talk of uh, prosecuting people may uh, be thrown by the wayside. The other option, the more peaceful option, is let us first put all this aside. And the only legal aspect there is let us first remove certain aspects within the basic laws that only limit uh, sovereignty to as uh, uh, within the, the the territory that we are conflicting over, and 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 say that this is going to be a nation proper within the Westphalian model as opposed to being a theocracy, a, a pseudo-theocracy that's not a theocracy. And that's that's I think that we have to look at it from the perspective of what can we do that allows for a political negotiation as opposed to making it necessary for there to be an, obs an absolute 
military victory, which would be the only option if we do not look at it that way. As, op- as, as, as far as prosecution of people is concerned, the only people that are likely to be prosecuted in reality are going to be on the Palestinian end or on the Hamas end. I don't decry it very much, but I think that we need to do more on the end of bringing these people to that, bringing not uh, bring the the Israeli people to the table and showing them that look, the Israeli state can be uh, looked upon as a different entity from merely a Jewish entity because the reality is, even the the, the definition or the classification of a Jew itself is still a tenuous one. So I, I hope that that sort of speaks to why I am skeptical about trying to bring in international criminal law as a solution, as a possible solution to this conflict, uh, Silas. Uh, thank you so much, Joel. I hope Silas's question and he feels it has been justif- justifically um, addressed Sour Grace, thank you so much for taking the initiative to ask a question. I would like you to pose your question and maybe any of the panelists or any that you direct this question to will be able to address it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you for hosting uh, this this one. Um, I, my question goes to Benson and uh, Joel Steele. Um, when we you have classified the Israel-Hamas attack as an occupation. And I think you rightly do so. Uh, you have classified Hamas as terrorists. And so in my understanding of this classification, you you, you are saying that a, a state recognized under international law is fighting terrorism or terrorists as per se. So in this case, um, and, and Joel has said that Israel must take the responsibility of a state and respond to this attack in a state-like manner, I mean, in a manner that respects international law. So in this case, does IHL apply um, to this retaliation, Israel's retaliation against terrorism, not against a non-state actor or an armed group, not against um, and a fellow international state, but against terrorism, ter- terrorists. So in this case, should Israel um, stay on the leash and um, stay tied on the leash of international law and the rules of, 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 of law or the laws of armed conflicts while the Hamas play um, against the rules or play with no rules at all? So should the Hamas stay on the loose, playing with no rules, they're not governed under international law, they're not governed and, under the laws of armed conflict, but then somehow we expect um, Israel to, to, res- to respond to these, to these attacks in a state-like manner. So that is, I don't know whether that question has been made as a question or rather a statement, but um, I would like it to be a question to, to uh, Joel and Benson. And then the other is... Uh, on uh, to Yvonne, uh, I mean, how this all will end. Um, in my view, how it all plays out is that, the, and the only way parties can remain, can be accountable under international law, or if at all they can be held accountable in the ICC, 
it could be that if Gaza is um, is considered occupied an occupied territory or becomes occupied in in whole or in part, or if Palestine in one way or the other is considered a state, and if sufficient ties exist between the Hamas and another state such as Iran um, or the Hezbollah, I think they're, they're from Lebanon. So if at all there can be a, a, a tie that can be linked, or if at all a state takes over uh, the Hamas and they can take care of the of, of the planning, the general planning of this war and how it all plays out, then it would it would turn out to be an international conflict and maybe the international law will apply. But in this case, I want to hear from Joel and Benson. Okay. Uh, Francis, am I loud and clear? Yeah, you're now loud and clear. Take it away. All right. Uh, so I'm going to try and be brief with my response to Grace's question. I think he raises quite a very pertinent question that we had much earlier. And firstly, to contextualize your, your question before I can address it is that I don't know if it's just me, but I think we are occasionally losing you, Benson. Okay. Am I audible now? Yeah, I think I think we're good to go. Did we lose Ben? I think I think we lost him again. Um, Benson, I hope you're you're okay now. I see has to account logged in. He may be trying to switch from a PC to a phone. Benson, you let us know when you're ready. Um, Yvonne, would you like to answer Nsawa's portion of your question? And then as we wait for Benson. Yes, please. Uh, I, I I just felt like there was a mix-up of the questions. So please, Grace, can you kindly repeat my bit of the question and then I'll try to be as brief as possible in answering it. Thank you. And uh, Your bit of the question was in regard to how the parties will get to be accountable under international uh, humanitarian law or by the ICC. And I was, I was suggesting that do you now anticipate a situation whereby uh, Gaza um, is is now wholly occupied or is considered an occupied territory and then maybe Palestine in this case is considered a state and maybe another state takes over the Hamas and, and takes over the whole general planning of this war. Um, is that how 
you you envision this to end so that at the end of the day we have accountability from the other parties because in my view um and in connection with uh, the question that i posed to joel and benson these these two parties may not be um may not be accountable and international or in the present state of affairs where um, an internationally recognized state is fighting against terrorists and in respect to the classification in this discussion. Thank you for your question, Grace. Um, I think um, uh, the, um, the speaker before, the, I think Silas did ask a question in relation to international criminal law that Joe probably... Um, sought not to answer because he did not think that would be um, uh, a valid solution. But since you've brought it up again, I will quickly go into international criminal law very briefly. And also because I feel uh, Joel and Benson will do justice to the IHL part that we've basically you know, been looking into since the beginning of our conversation. <clears throat> so in terms of responsibility, the ICC is... Uh, it, it mainly looks at individual criminal responsibility, except for the crime of aggression, which actually has never been prosecuted before. Th th there's no known legal precedence of the crime of aggression before the ICC, because it, uh, it, it, it's a very recent crime that was actually uh, transposed into the Rome Statute by the Kampala Amendment in 2010. But it becomes um, a very valid crime depending on how you look at Palestine. Because the crime of aggression is one that is going to be committed by a state against another state. It depends on whether you look at Palestine as a state or not. But then also at the same time, at the beginning of the conversation, uh, one of the speakers talked about how the uh, Palestine is a non-observer state to the UN. But then by virtue of it also being part of the Rome Statute, does imply that actually some states do recognize Palestine as a state because what governs statutes and, and conventions is treaty law. And treaty law usually, well, if, 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 if a particular treaty concerns states, then they all have to be states, right? Because it means that countries are recognizing the sovereignty of of, 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 of another state. However, at the same time, uh, I think um, Joel must have touched on the point of Hamas does have political control, so they may be recognized as, you know, as a movement that does represent Gaza or even the Palestinian people. In assessing statehood in international law, sometimes it goes beyond the legal requirements of statehood, uh, which are usually four, and one of them is political control or having a government or a government that can easily have relations with other states. It usually goes beyond that to a more subjective criterion of recognition. So there are very many states, quasi-states in the world that have fulfilled those four um, criteria, but because they are not recognized as states, then they are not considered as 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 fully states, and it's the same thing for Palestine. The question is not about whether they fulfill the the Montevideo criteria. The question is more of whether they are recognized. So, if we come to the ICC, that's going to be a problem with the crime of aggression, and also because unlike the other three crimes, the crime of aggression is very particular in terms of jurisdiction, because. Uh, 
a country can choose to refuse jurisdiction in accordance with Article 15b of the of the Rome Statute. So Israel may not really assert to, um, you know, may not accept whatever investigations that, you know, uh, uh, or even Palestine, right? Because it's not at, the crime of aggression is not generally attached to the major um, or to the uh, to to the general jurisdiction that's set out in Article 13 and 12 of the Rome Statute, and that's why I don't want to go deeply into it because this may have to take us to whether Palestine is a state or not. Then, in terms of other crimes, uh, uh, we've already talked about war crimes, and it's an intersection between IHL and uh, and the international criminal law. J- just like I said earlier, it's very possible for uh, for for um for the ICC to prosecute these crimes. But remember, with ICC prosecutions, that it, it's it's a step. So first of all, the the um the prosecutor will have to go in Gaza, or in Israel, whichever place, it does not matter that Israel is not part of the Rome Statute, because as long as crimes have been committed on land that of, of, of a state party or by nationals of a state party, then the ICC does have jurisdiction, to both territorial and national jurisdiction for that matter. So they can go ahead and investigate any war crimes, which we've discussed, and I don't want to enter into those. Other pertinent and potential crimes would be Genocide. There has been, um, well, uh, uh, I mean, the media has really tried to build on this, and usually international law is very slow to actually justify the existence of genocide in any case. And if you're to look at legal precedents by major international courts like the ICC or even the ICJ, there has been very few cases of genocide because. Unlike other crimes, it has its own kind of dolus specialis. So it has a different kind of special intention that is very hard to actually establish. But for the first time, in my own opinion, it's safe to say that in the recent wars, this war is very likely to fulfill the um, the, 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 the different criteria of genocide in accordance with the, 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 the Genocide Convention, but also the Rome Statute, which literally... Uh, has you know the same wording, so in terms of the uh, the Dolus Specialis, which is basically to destroy in whole or in part, doesn't it it it, it does not matter that Israel is only targeting Gaza. It does not matter that uh, that the West Bank may not be facing the same atrocities or the same level, or 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 or, or undergoing um you know um similar sufferings with the people in Gaza, what matters that a section, a geographic section of the people of a certain nationality, by this case, I mean Palestinians, are actually being attacked. Now, to establish destruction in whole or in part, usually the courts are going to look at evidential, um, circumstantial evidence, right? They may look at what has been said. And that's why I've continuously repeated that the tone that has been set by Israeli leaders is very incriminating. And it's very important as well, you know, in terms of evidential value, because you're going to look at what, for instance, the, the defense minister said, right? how they're animals and they need to be treated as such, how the, the, the Jewish spokesperson uh, um, ha, ha, uh, has spoken about eliminating everything, right? We're not focusing on on, 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 on trying to... Um, they're basically 
openly and elaborately saying that they are not planning to create any distinction. And now it's this same hate speech that is always an antecedent of genocide. And I'm not concluding, like I said, this area of law is very fact-hungry, but theoretically I can safely and confidently say that for the past decades I've never seen a war that alludes so much to that theory and argument like this one. But then, becoming more realistic, it is very unlikely that the solution to this war is going to go down to international criminal law. At the same time, we need to consider it, right? We, we never know what could happen, especially because after the Russia-Ukrainian war, the West, you know, has been trying to push forward the agenda of international criminal law and the International Criminal Court in order to incriminate Russia. So if they keep up with that same attitude, then we can actually see it unfolding the same war. And hopefully something may happen. But, well, let's not be too optimistic. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Yvonne. Yvonne contends the idea of being realistic. So she's a realist in this case, that the potential end of the whole fracas and affair is not going to be any different from that that has always transpired in previous wars. Thank you so much, Yvonne. And the question I have um, before we close the space to any of the speakers that would like to address it. This question is predominantly unorthodox, and it is premised on the idea that Israel believes it is a God's chosen nation, and that because of that reason, it has the rights to do whatever it wills, especially if this is for the purpose of protecting the interests of Israelites, and protecting the territory that was awarded to it in 1947-1948. Thank you. Any of you could choose to take on this question. I think we should leave that for believers in God. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Maybe Francis. Um, just before that, I, I, I concur with, with with Roy as to the best uh, person to respond to that question. However, maybe just a, a quick sneak peek. Your question is essentially drawing us back to the historical ties, and like I said, um, the historical foundation of this entire war and the entire discussion is premised on what perspective you prefer to view the war in. And whilst we had um, an entire argument made by, by, by Roy in respect of, of, of you know, the, the Zionist state, there is quite a lot of literature and um, justification for the presence of Jews on that land way before um, the, the Arabs. So in essence, what we are discussing in respect of your question is essentially in the current context of the, of the discussion, a question on whether the war is indeed a just war, the question of just at Belam. And like I said, it's one that is quite very controversial and certainly not a response that we can conclusively decide on in this discussion. However, once again, I have to apologize for my network glitches. 
I was unable to hear the question asked by Grace and I think Silas, but maybe just if I could um, try to uh, say a word or two on what they asked. And most of it was in relation to uh, labeling the Hamas as a terrorist group and whether IHL would apply essentially in respect of countermeasures to terrorist uh, groups. Now, there is um, credible literature both by the RCRC, by the RCRC and uh, scholars who have argued that the applicability of IHL in countermeasures against terrorism is alive and sound simply because there is an intersectionality between um, international human rights law and international humanitarian law. In the particular context that we look at um, when it comes to political preferences, states are more inclined to categorize any uprising, at least that which goes beyond the threshold of a riot, to being a terrorist insurrection. The reason is because the framework in itself does not permit the terrorist group, does not justify certain actions by the terrorist group. Say, for instance, and I'll give this example with particular uh, conjecture. So if we agreed on this space that we could just get up and go and attack um, Makenke Barracks and go and bomb it, what do you think would happen to us? In the context of a terrorist group, we would be prosecuted, not just only under the question of maybe a war crime or anything related to that, but also in the context of our national laws, such as the Anti-Terrorism Act or even the Penal Code Act. That in itself helps the state to have a, a strong political grip on the insurrections that happen, as opposed to a situation where if we were a legitimate armed force and we took an attack on a military objective with direct and concrete military advantage against Makenge Barracks, the effect would be different and the liability on international level would also be different. So that is one, the short answer to why most states would prefer to categorize it as a terrorist group. However, there is also, um, you know, general... Um, resolutions by the United Nations General Assembly that, I have, that have posited that the applicability of IHL does not cease simply because you are against um, a terrorist group. By the very nature of a terrorist group, sometimes is, 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 is trans, transparent on borderline. So if you had the ISIS attack um, a Ugandan uh, civilian object or, um, say, for example, the 2010 bombings, you would have the justification to deal with them in a manner that you would have dealt with maybe say an armed force, but only in respect of certain actions. So you will not go and bomb, um, you know, a Somali uh, settlement simply because you have one or two rebels or terrorists uh, housed therein. So the applicability in essence is still heavily present, especially when we look at customary international law that requires states to uphold a certain threshold um, when it comes to, to, to countermeasures against terrorism. And I think maybe, say, the last point that I would like to make as I leave the call is um, more or less a more scholarly one as opposed to a political one. Okay, maybe first I'll give the political solution. 
Um, once again, I don't think the solution to this war is one that is cast in stone, nor is it one that would be easily gotten. For if it were, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. And I think people who are dedicated um, literally most of their lives to finding the Israeli-Palestinian solution would have done so long before us. But perhaps maybe a consideration of what Joe Roy mentioned in respect of desionization of, 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 of the entire uh, land and the populace. Whereas that may not necessarily yield the fruits that we require, because in essence, they would be losing an identity. And I don't think even in respect of the question of self-determination, any populace would be more than willing to lose that identity um, in respect of coexistence or peace. I think, though, there's been quite uh, persuasive literature on the question of uh, confederation, stroke federation, as to where you would have, say, um, a holy land, as they dub it, and then have these two states, quote-unquote, living as... Um, as, as, as states under one unified, uh, where you have a government, where they vote their own rights, where they only come together to, you know, agree on certain disbursement of resources and maximization. And whereas I know that in itself is equally a long journey ahead, I think that may be one of the ways of moving on and recognizing um, the right to self-determination or as a people of those two instances. I am equally surprised, and this is my last point, that uh, Grace did not raise the question of whether international law is really law, because I think a conversation like this essentially takes us to, if we argue that international law and international humanitarian law is existent, then why are we in this situation in the first place? But a simple response, and perhaps something that I have always convinced myself, is in the statement of um, uh, a number of scholars, one of them, I think, being Luther Patch as well, who said that, um, I think even Heineken, who said that um, all states respect almost all, almost all states respect almost all international law almost all the time. In essence, that in itself very means that there is a considerable amount of compliance to international law that we never discuss, that we never recognize as opposed to the, um, you know, the, the situations where we have non-compliance. And the solution at the end of the day is always to look at principles such as erga omnes, to look at just cogens, and see how we can leverage some of those principles into utilizing uh, the legal framework that we have to bring these perpetrators to book, to impose legal sanctions on states, and to also ensure that we never have to resort to war. Um, I think recently, as we are celebrating the death of one of the SEJ judges, the statement is peace through law, not war. Thank you very much for listening, and I wish you a good night. Thank you so much, Benson, for elaborately answering that question and giving your parting shots on the topic I would like to appreciate my colleagues, Harry Mwesigwa and uh, colleagues at Lex Amica for this initiative. Thank you so much for the work you're doing in the legal space in Uganda. And I see you're also making moves and shaking ground at the international scene. Um, kudos to you guys. Thank you so much for the honor. 
having conferred upon me to moderate this space. Thank you, Yvonne um, Tessire, and congratulations upon your graduation from uh, the university. And also, Joroy Muchunguzi, thank you so much for taking your time to be here with us. And uh, Benson Mayanja, Sour Grace, for asking the question. And Sila Sonen, you guys asked the two out of five questions we're supposed to ask today. And thank you guys for really being patient with us. This space was supposed to take an hour and a half, but we've been able to effectively utilize two hours and 11 minutes because this is indeed a question that is um, above us. Um, this is when we look at things like service above self. You're rendering your minds to trying to establish a solution for a problem that will exist long before we're gone. And we pray that with the different initiatives of international law scholars, jurists, that um, an amicable solution will be devised for the Israel-Hamas fracas and conflict. Thank you so much. I think at this point I hand over to the host. And maybe as um, an individual, I think my final opinion on the topic is that I think the position I take is a neutral one. I'm not for Israel, nor am I for Palestine, because both of them, or Hamas, have violated international humanitarian law. Um, the question on whether it is enforceable or not is also one that is rooted in realistic um, aspects of this war. And that is why political solutions are to be sought, alternative measures to be implemented, as opposed to the ones that have been codified in law. Um, codification of laws and their enforcement is really premised on consenting states. If, if a state is willing to have the law applicable to its actions, then we'll have probably, you know, we'll be inching closer to finding um, a final solution to some of these challenges that we're facing on the Asian continent. Um, so I, I, I take a neutral position because we've seen across the Americas, um, North America, Europe, taking a stance can be fatal to a brand, to a reputation. Students have been um, dismissed from school. People have been de denied scholarships and offers from law firms because of taking particular views and stances on this topic. So it is quite a contentious one. And I appreciate the speakers for having, um, you know, recognized and taken into consideration the nuances and subtle um, instances to be applied while trying to address our minds to this quite contentious issue. I remain Francis Biarohanga. I um, also appreciate, you know, having met Benson once again and sharing on the same space, having mooted together during the Jessup Human, uh, the Jessup, Philip C. Jessup International Law moot, where he emerged uh, best oralist. And I pray and hope that um, the spirit of mooting and, you know, legal advocacy continues burning in your heart. Thank you so much and have a good night.
Um, thank you so much, Francis, uh, for such great work. I just take this opportunity to thank our very great panelists, Benson, Joel, and uh, Yvonne. Thank you, guys, and also our audience. Thank you for staying up to this long. We hope it has been an insightful discussion. Have a good night. This audio is made with Audio Toolkit for Windows Store, downloaded for free now.